Welcome to Kick Over the Statues, the podcast all about statues, from Venus to Milo to Bill Shankly, from Dixie Dean to Dean Jonathan Swift, from Michelangelo's Madonna to Maradona, from George Best to Pete Best, the latter of whom's statue is one of the world's most confusing statues, but more on that later. This podcast is not just about statues, but about all the questions that they throw up, about power, war, art and commerce which is, oddly enough, the theme of this episode, if you also throw in affordable housing, Northern Ireland, modernist architecture and Harrington jackets. In this podcast, we'll be asking such questions as what are statues for? Who are statues for? Who gets to decide which statues are put up? And finally, the question on everybody's lips, why are there loads and loads and loads of statues about heroes, mainly to do with violence? Why can't we have statues of real everyday heroes? Like my postie, who wears shorts in the dead of winter no matter how iced up her legs are, or NHS nurses, or delivery van drivers, or the dry cleaners who open ten minutes late because they know that you really need that suit for the wedding next day. Or real heroes, like Jay Blades from The Repair Shop, who mended that great-granddad's rocking chair that was 80 years old. (laughs) Anyway, this show is called Kick Over the Statues, and that is with a question mark. The reason it's framed as a question is because statues, as we have seen recently on the streets of Bristol, London, Liverpool and Washington can be very contentious works of art indeed. Some people would even contest that very definition. And if you've ever seen the statue of Maradona unveiled in Kolkata in India in 2017, you'll know what I'm talking about. It looks nothing like the world-famous footballer stroke cheat. In fact, upon its unveiling, it attracted a nothing but derision, with some Indian commentators liken it to Roy Hodgson, Bobby Ewing from Dallas, and even, according to the critic from the Times of India, somebody's gran, albeit somebody's gran that has done enormous amounts of Peruvian marching powder. My guest on the podcast today is stand-up comedian, writer, accomplished performer of comedy songs, former MTV presenter and motorbike enthusiast, the very funny Mr Ben Norris. Welcome to you, Ben. Thank you, Steve. What a lovely intro. Thank you. Great to have you here. Uh, Incidentally, um... Ben, have you any idea why the statue of Pete Best is so confusing? Uh, no, I, I wasn't familiar with it. Um, I'll tell you why. It's because the statue of Pete Best, the erstwhile drummer in the Beatles from 1960 to 1962, is not actually a statue of him uh, because it's situated in Beatlesplatz in Hamburg and the plinth features all five Beatles that played there, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Stuart Sutcliffe. But the fifth statue is a hybrid of Pete Best and Ringo Starr, because both drummers played in Hamburg. I mean, how galling must that be for Pete Best? Sacked from the Beatles for being too good-looking, and he's not even allowed his own statue. <laughs> how, how did they amalgamate the two uh, men? What, what did they do? 
Well, uh, well, it's actually um, it's really grotesque to look at it because it's um, a hybrid of their facial features <laughs> and their wow. bodies. It's like um, it's like they, they've been taken over, you know, by uh, invasion of the body snatchers. Um, I just it's it's grotesque, and I do feel sorry for Pete Best because um, you can imagine the burghers of Germany when they were putting the statue up, going, "Shall we give Pete Best his own statue?" Nine, I hear it was very bad at timekeeping. <laughs> so uh, let's get started uh, on the podcast. The first question for you, uh, as I ask everyone every week, is Ben, what is your favourite statue and why? Well, my favourite statue, it's a statue called Pastoral. Uh, I think I'm saying that correctly. And it was the work of a contemporary sculptor from the kind of 50s era called Keith Godwin. And it's situated on one of uh, Eric Lyons's estates. Now, Eric Lyons was a really cool kind of forward-thinking architect. And he built lots of very modernist but practical kind of um, family homes on estates, mostly around London in the 60s, 50s and 60s. And he commissioned Keith Godwin to create this statue for the development Parkleys. It's called Parkleys Estate in in Ham uh, in London in, in 1956. And it's just a lovely sort of quite modernist statue of, of a human being and a bird flying sort of out of their hands, I think. It was sort of sort of a optimistic, hopeful, future-looking, symbolic mm. thing. Yeah. But it was, it was hugely controversial, as was a lot of Eric Lyons's architecture, because people didn't kind of understand it. The British being, especially perhaps in that era, a bit stayed, a bit post-war, a bit a lot of people not ready for a new uh, look Britain. But there was a whole movement of people that were really excited about, you know, Mm. sweeping some of the old-fashioned stuff aside and lots of sort of little Victorian small-windowed houses being rebuilt. And people like Eric Lyons were saying, hang on, there's a whole new way of building houses for people that are more practical with bigger windows and more light and space and, and having the inside and the outside be joined up in a better way and having communal gardens and making just a nicer place for people to build a community and live and 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 that's sort of what that statue represents and so did lots of Eric Lyons's fantastic modernist houses yeah it's interesting with the statue itself though it's meant to embody the theme of homemaking isn't it and uh it's very much it's 1950s time because uh it's the woman who's portrayed as the homemaker and uh quite why she's stark naked i uh (laughs) i don't really know you you don't need to be naked to load the dishwasher um and also i quite like the (laughs) go on I was going to say, well, nothing says welcome home more than a naked woman standing at the door. <laughs> in, the, in 1956, I mean, obviously now that would be... Well, yes, unacceptable. Unacceptable. Um, um, he's an interesting character, Keith Godwin, because he's responsible for a lot of good statues. Um, there's a brilliant one in Harlow called The Philosopher, which is very famous, and um, a wonderful statue called Guy and the Boar, which is... Um, in Warwick, which depicts the medieval legend of Guy of Warwick, who, in order to win the love of his sweetheart, Felice, had to slay giants, dragons and a huge boar, uh, which wasn't Piers Morgan. And in true romantic fashion, this heroic and flamboyant statue is situated on a traffic island on the A429. 
See, this is the problem, isn't it, with a lot of, you know, very well-meaning statuary is after the initial enthusiasm by whoever commissioned it or the council that thought it was a good idea, later on they become quite often victims of disinterest and people go, where the hell are we going to put this? And they get moved and eventually sometimes sidelined and even forgotten about. Or stolen, which is the other thing that's happened to a few... uh, Wasn't there a Barbara Hepworth that was nicked out of um, one of the parks in south-east London? Um, I must say, by the way, Parkley's estate is quite interesting because um, I don't know whether you know this, that all 15 blocks um, were named after poets. Uh, So you could have... That's how people identify this. What's that terrace that seems to go on forever? Uh, Tennyson. Uh, What's that block near the wasteland? T.S. Eliot. (laughs) What's that slightly scary and depressing-looking one? John Cooper Clark Estate. <laughs> What's that one that's got a dodgy relationship with his sister, Wordsworth? Um, so, I mean, Eric Lyons is an interesting character. I know that you um, you're a big fan of his because he's cut his teeth in the 1930s working with a guy called Walter Gropius. Yes, uh, who's the founder of the Bauhaus movement. Um, in Weimar, Germany in 1919. And it's actually interesting because it was founded during the Weimar Republic. So the houses took ages to build because all the wheelbarrows were full of inflated German currency. Um, (laughs) But Bauhaus means build houses, doesn't it? I mean, you can't get more German than that, can you? I I like that, by the (laughs) way, that uh, not to be confused with the 80s band Bauhaus, which I always found was uh, really ironic that a movement representing a vision of futuristic and forward-looking architecture should be represented by a band who are really gothic. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Walter Gropius, uh, of course, was hugely influential on Eric Lyons about um, building affordable homes for people. And that's You're you're into that sort of... um, You live in a an Eric Lyons-related house, don't you? Yeah, he didn't design it, this house, but whoever did was clearly very influenced by the same kind of movement. So my house was built in 1961, and it's built in a little crescent shape. So they're, they're townhouses on sort of several levels, and uh, but they're built, 20 of them, in a crescent around a kind of communal raised garden, and we've got communal gardens yeah. out the back as well. And... Uh, it's just lovely. Lots of big windows, lots of light, and thankfully, dramatically undervalued when I bought it <laughs> 17 years ago. And uh, meant, <laughs> do you know what I mean? People weren't so excited about mid-century modern architecture then, and it meant I was able to get, frankly, a four-bedroom family home at a price I could afford. And now I couldn't no. afford to live here for love nor money. No, well, for money. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so I live in a sort of a thing that I'm enthusiastic about. And all my furniture is from that era as well. Lamps and tables and Mm. chairs and sofas, all from the early 60s. So it's it's not quite a museum, but it's a, you know, it's quite a sort of certain style that I that I've got going on here. Eric Lyons, of course, was really into the idea of making homes um, livable in. It's that idea of homes for people that are accessible and don't oppress people or whatever. I just wonder where it went wrong because lots of people are living in horrible, you know, uh, concrete blocks. Inspired a lot by Le Corbusier as well, you know, people like that, where it's quite brutal and concrete and very, very depressing. Well, you say that, there is such a huge difference between bad concrete buildings and fantastic Mm. concrete buildings. 
And, you know, again, I quite like brutalism. And some of that is a bit misunderstood. Some of it was just badly done. And like a lot of these movements, like the span houses, you know, he was one of the first to have the kind of modernist kind of tile hung front mm. on a flat front building. Obviously, they did it back to 300 years earlier, but in a kind of modern sense, he was one of the first to adopt that. And then councils all over Britain saw pictures of his fantastic span estates and just thought, well, we can copy that. And then they did it very unlovingly and very badly. And the same goes for concrete structures. You know, a lot of people hate the South Bank, but I absolutely love it. And a lot of those kind of buildings that were both sort of really practical and egalitarian and everybody is welcome to use them and all those spaces that are just fantastic inside and out. And yeah, I just think if it's done well, it can be brilliant. And to go back to the point about why has housing gone back to being crap? Well, it's really weird because if you look at some of Span's developments, I don't think they cost any more to build. I don't think they used much more in the way of materials. They were just better designs. And for the life of me, can't work out why we went back to building little Barrett rabbit hutches with tiny little windows and fake wood UPVC. Oh my God, it's awful. And estates that look like they are meant to look like Tudor times. (laughs) You know, crikey, it's 2020. It's really weird. There's actually a McDonald's in Chester, which is Tudor, isn't there? I I was a sucker because I used to go there all the time at the school, and I used to think it was an original Tudor building, but it's not. It was built in about 1978. Yeah, amazing. There's so much of that stuff because it's a weird kind of British nostalgia for a time that no one remembers anyway. And it's bad design and they're impractical. That's why everybody's got a, you know, every single Victorian terrace has now knocked their dining room through to their kitchen and put a square box extension on the back because they realise how impractical a lot of those old designs were. And yet they're still making that mistake over and over again on horrible little Barrett estates all over the country. Incidentally, by the way, I think you'll appreciate this, that Walter Gropius, who's, um, you know, Eric Lyons' sort of mentor, was acknowledged as the arch-pioneer of modernism. For me, it's like a vision of loads of architects wearing parkas, just whizzing down the Reaper Bomb with Vespa scooters going, <laughs> oh, mate, you got any blue bombers? And they say, well, in 20 years' time, we may well do. <laughs> yeah. Because they were hated by the Nazis, weren't they? Bauhaus. Um, <laughs> What, the mods? They were suppressed by the Nazis, yeah. They, they killed a lot of them. The Nazis hated the mods. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was, I was going to say that the, I guess there is a connection, isn't there, with, with modernism and, and the mods. It was, it, you know, it does come from some of the same yeah. aesthetic uh, values. I, I, I genuinely think it does. Yeah, it, it definitely does. Kick over the Kick over the statues. Second question, right, and uh, this is uh, more contentious. Uh, what statue, in your view, deserves to be pulled down? Well, I know that um, a lot of people think that we shouldn't revise history, and there is a big argument, isn't there, about trying to erase our past and things. And I, and I get that, but I also think st- statues are, you know, most of them were put up to, mm-hmm. you know, venerate somebody, and... I think after a certain amount of time, we are able to be grown-ups and say, hang on, was this person really a good person? And so I guess the one that would fall into that category for me would be the statue of Bomber Harris, Arthur Bomber Harris, which is in the Strand. 
And he, if you look into his background, he was a bit yeah. of a dubious character. He was heavily involved in in the bombing of civilians uh, in colonial conflicts in uh, Iraq and Palestine and India before he developed a strategy for deliberately killing thousands of German yeah. civilians in World War Two. So he most famously kind of killed 25,000 people exactly, in yeah. Dresden in one single night in 1945. And it was a calculated, well, it, it was almost a terror thing, wasn't it? It was, a, it was meant to cow the German people. Yeah. It didn't actually work. And ironically, of all things, he fell out with Winston Churchill over it. He wanted to do it more and more, and then he was completely sidelined after that. Incidentally, by the way, you know that that statue, uh, ironically, it looks better from the air, but the statue, when it was unveiled in 1992, I don't know if you remember this, the Queen was actually heckled. Someone went, yeah, he's a criminal. Really? I just imagine the Queen replying, where did you learn to heckle? In an RAF jump jet. <laughs> um, but... Be- um, yeah, it's it's a very contentious uh, statue because some people argue, you know, being devil's advocate for a moment, that it was worth it to end the war, etc., etc. Although Bomber Harris, uh, the clue's in the name, was very much um, in favour of uh, aerial bombardment. He said the, the only thing that the Arab understands is a firm hand. Wow. Which sounds like the introduction to a porn movie, but it's not. <laughs> There's an interesting fact about Bomber Harris that he identified all his life as Rhodesian rather than British. Wow. Yeah, his original ambition was to be a farmer in Rhodesia. Um, obviously, not on his farm, on land stolen from the original <laughs> inhabitants. And he only went there because, and I quote, there were such a lot of opportunities for bright young men. Uh, obviously, not bright young black men. Um, no. And he was very much a supporter of all lives, brackets, white Rhodesian settlers matter. <laughs> yeah. But it's an interesting point about statues are only there by consent, in a way, aren't they? And the values that they embody will change over time. So nothing if you excuse the pun, is set in stone, is it? We should be revising what we mean and what we want out of our public monuments, you know, all the time. You know, it's fluid. Yeah. I mean, I think I would hate to see um, people removing chapters from books and that kind of thing. I'm not into that kind of revisionism because I think it is important that we read, you know, how people were thinking and what they were doing, cultural things like that from the time and we're all grown up enough to understand oh that Enid Blyton was a racist (laughs) that's just what she was like that's what it was like then Uh, but you know we don't (laughs) but we don't need to burn all of her you know five go mad in Dorset we don't need to burn her books do we Uh, we just have to say to our kids I'm I'm afraid I can't read you out the next line it's awful but statues are a different thing yeah that's very true I mean there are other Harrises we could have in his place you know Keith Harris Oh, yeah. He'd be quite good, wouldn't he? You know? Absolutely. Yeah, he'd be good. You know? I wish I could justify dropping bombs from the sky, but I can't. <laughs> you can? Yeah, no, I can't. I just can't do it. <laughs> My voice went then. Uh, you could have Rolf Harris. He'd be a good um, one. A bit contentious. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a, a good talking point there, the Chopper Harris. And the, just so you uh, know, who, Steve, just so you know, you just said Chopper Harris. I think you didn't did mean I? that. <laughs> you did, yeah. Oh. Who is Chopper Harris? Chopper Harris is Ron Harris, the uh, very robust and physical Chelsea defender from the 1970s who uh, was famously a very hard man in football. I don't know. Did I say Chopper Harris instead of Ron Harris? Or instead of... I think you meant Bomber Harris uh, and you said Chopper. (laughs) So what's more offensive, what's more offensive, a bomber or a chopper? That's the question our listeners need to... 
Ponder. <laughs> oh dear. Kick over the statues. Kick over the statues. Just lead us on to the next question. If you don't think that someone deserves to have their statue up, who in fact deserves to have a statue put up that hasn't got one? Who do you think deserves a statue? Well, I don't think there's a statue of Neil Hannon uh, anywhere yet. I could be wrong, but that, I would say, would be a a great person. He deserves a statue in Derry, I thought, because that's where he was born. Derry or London Derry, if you want to really annoy people. I know. Very, very, very contentious. I used to have a joke, you know, that the uh, the unionists referred to Jerry Adams as London Jerry, but um, <laughs> that it is it, they call it Stroke City, don't they? Do they? So as not to offend either. Yeah, uh, the, the radio presenters go, "Good evening, uh, good afternoon, and welcome to Stroke City," uh, which sounds like a different kind of place, literally. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, he was born in Derry. Uh, So, and I think, I don't know, that's a place that's obviously seen a lot of anger and division. And I think he's Mm. such an antidote to all that. You know, he's he's skillful, witty lyrics and he's gentle and he's got a nice, modest demeanour. And I've just always, I've loved his music, but he comes across as just a great person. And uh, I did meet him once. I met him once. He is fantastic. Yeah. You know, they say never meet your heroes, but actually Mm. it was very pleasant meeting him. And I was at the, I think the only proper film premiere I've ever been to because uh, my cousin Martin Freeman was in the movie and he invited Mm. me and my wife to uh, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Do you remember they did a a movie of that? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. And Neil Hannon did the music, did the theme tune. So we were all at the kind of showbiz party afterwards, drinking as much as of the free booze as possible. And I saw Neil Hannon. He was chatting to a couple of the blokes from, um, what are they called? The League of Gentlemen. Well, and they yeah. were concluding a, a conversation and the League of Gentlemen guys were saying, anyway, that's it for us. We're going. And as they left, Neil Hannon, you know, looked completely at, adrift, you know, in a, in a social situation like that with all these people. Yeah. And so I just went straight over and saw my opportunity and I went, hi, uh, hi, Neil, big fan. Let's, let's go and get another free drink. And he was happy to chat and we went to the bar and ha- had some more wine and uh, he was a lovely, lovely fella. Yeah, it was really nice to meet yeah, him. Yeah, he, um, he, he doesn't seem to have aged, does he? No, he's... You see pictures of him 25 years ago. He looks the same. He, he's, he's got one of those youthful faces. I think he's, yeah, he's a very lucky yeah. man. When when I when I met him, I I, I loved that song um, becoming more like Alfie, mm-hmm. uh, which has got my favourite couplet, uh, which goes, "Everybody knows that no means yes, just like glasses come free on the NHS." Yeah, and uh, I met him on a Radio Four program, Loose Ends, and um, he was lovely. And I said, "That's that's one of my favourite songs." He said, oh, "Well, that's very kind of you, etc." And I said, "Well, who played that fantastic?" fantastically stunning lead guitar solo at the end, which is one of my favourite guitar solos. And he goes, it was me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, he's not only is he a brilliant writer and a brilliant singer, but um, he's a very good musician Yeah, he's well. a proper all-rounder. Um, yeah. I was doing a bit of research, as I often do, around the subject, and uh, there are not many statues of Northern Irish pop musicians up at all. There's no statue of Van Morrison which is interesting because uh, probably Van Morrison would want the statue to be welded without a mask. <laughs> but there's uh, there's no statue, Snow Patrol, Stiff Little Fingers, Ash. Um, I'm running out of Northern Irish uh, pop stars now. Um, well, surely, can you um, think of any? Undertones? Oh, my God. 
Uh, do you know a sweet story about them that um, the first line, uh, teenage... Kicks. Yeah, are hard to beat. Uh, see my girl walking down the street. It's inscribed on John Peel's gravestone, isn't it? Yes, it was his favourite song of all time, wasn't it? Yeah. And he, because yeah. he... Teenage dreams are hard to beat, that was it, yeah. I think he quite liked teenagers, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> uh, allegedly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> um, yeah, it's inscribed on his gravestone. Uh, there's an interesting one. I, I, I don't know if you've ever seen the statue of George Best which was unveiled last year, sculpted by Anthony Curry. But they're very unkind about that in Belfast as well because it, it's pretty hideous. Right. And um, some people compared it to uh, Columbo, the detective, but some people compared it to Lionel Richie. Just, just one more drink. <laughs> That's one more drink. <laughs> I know they were opening up a George Best Hotel, weren't they, in Belfast? And I was thinking, yes. wow, of all the hotel bars, it's going to be tricky to get closed by 1am. That one. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Have another drink. I don't want one. No, have one. <laughs> it's what um, he would have wanted. Perhaps it's going to be lots of, uh, you know, ex-alcoholic footballer-themed hotels. Welcome to the Paul Gascoigne Hotel. <laughs> <laughs> here's, th- here's your keys to the Raoul Moat Suite. <laughs> The, the minibar's been pre-trashed by Paul himself. Yeah, the tears are all genuine. <laughs> um, well, that's a good answer, actually. And Neil Hannon, he would uh, be a, a great, great statue. Incidentally, by the way, a cracking uh, Northern Ireland band um, called Therapy. Oh, yeah, of course. Them? I do remember them, yeah. They sounded more American than Irish, I thought. Yeah, um, they're described at the time in the 90s as bubblegum heavy metal. Yeah. Which I think was a great description of them because they were very heavy but um, very poppy as well. Got a great song called Teeth Grinder. Yeah. Here's a fact for you. Only the second band in the history of rock and roll to have a question mark in their name. Can you guess the first one? Well, <laughs> would it be The Who? No. No. Uh, it's Question Mark and the Mysterians. Ah, oh, of course. Uh, the band who did the original version of um, I'm Gonna Cry 96 Tears. but um... And famously covered by my favourite band of all time, The Stranglers, on their final album before Hugh left. Yeah, so did Eddie and the Hot Rods and a lot of punk bands, yeah. Did you see them live a few times? I did. Luckily, I did get to see them before Hugh left, probably in the uh, late 80s. In fact, it was the time of Oral Sculpture, the, that album. Uh, they were fantastic. Yeah. They had a big brass section and it was at the Hammersmith Odeon, as it was called then. And I've seen them twice since Hugh left and pretty good, pretty good. That guy, Baz, mm. who stepped in, is an excellent substitution if you can't have Hugh Cornwell he's damn good so sad that we lost Dave Greenfield this year in Hugh Cornwell's autobiography he said that um, he was the best musician in the band by far yeah um, they, they all kind of looked up to him I once saw them at um, oh god it's Gilfest. yeah and it was after Hugh had left but before they had a couple of younger guys playing with them and uh, it wasn't as good I think Jean-Jacques was still with them yeah but um uh, it was in the same year that I saw Echo and the Bunnymen and the only original left was Ian McCulloch and the rest of them were all about 18. It was just brutally sad, terrible. Should have been called Echo and the Gonny Men. <laughs> Kick over the statues. Kick over the statues.
people's relationships to statues are, are funny. I don't know. I'm going to have to look up the word for this. What is a phobia of statues? There must be a word for it, like arachnophobia or, uh, for spiders, etc. But what statue, Ben, really creeps you out? Well, I, you've just reminded me in that moment of one of the scariest things when I was a kid in the early 70s was uh, Doctor Who and the Dummies. I don't know if you remember that particular selection of episodes, mm. but shop dummies no. they, they were shop dummies and they came to life so i guess they're a bit like statues aren't they but anything that's mm. meant to be inanimate that suddenly becomes animate is yes. terrifying unless of course mm. it's because of viagra but um the creepiest <laughs> creepiest statue thank you mate the creepiest statue is i'm going to go back to keith godwin again and eric lyons because eric lyons commissioned another piece from keith godwin for uh, a housing estate in Blackheath in 1958. Mm. And he commissioned Keith Godwin to build this statue called The Architect and Society. And it's a figure of a man set into a niche supporting kind of weight of a whole wall, a big block of concrete and then a wall. So it's sort of in the wall and he's got his sort of arms and legs up above his head. He's lying on his back. So like he's holding up the entire weight of the wall. And it was satirising... Eric's struggle with the local authority to get permission to build there. So I love the sentiment about that. But also I'm a claustrophobic, so the statue itself makes me feel a bit icky. I mean, I'm with you on that, you know, because obviously when you sent me through the picture of it, yeah, it makes me feel very claustrophobic because um, he's very hemmed in. It's like that the whole thing is... It's like um, Indiana Jones where he goes to get the... Uh, whatever it is, you know, and the the, the walls are closing in. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like that, isn't it? It is. Creepy as hell. Well, I agree that it's quite a creepy statue. Creep, creepy but cool, you know. It's a good call. Going back to Doctor Who, I'm very fascinated about the um, the way that you've described um, people's fear in a way of statues because there's a lot in culture, you know, Medusa turned people to stone, um, but then there's also lots of things in uh, popular culture uh, like the Pygmalion where he brings a statue to life, Shakespeare's plays, uh, statues come to life, etc., etc. Yeah. But uh, it's one of the Doctor Who episodes that I think probably one of the best ones is called Blink. I don't know whether Absolutely. you know Absolutely, I know it very well. Where they are attacked by statues that if you blink, they move forward. And if they touch you, they send you back in time and there's no way of getting you back. Um, it's written by Stephen Moffat. It's one of the best episodes. It's brilliant. It's, it's just, for some reason, it's quite quite terrifying. I had to leave the uh, Doctor Who experience in Cardiff with one of my children. Oh, yeah. Because we got to the point where the guide said, OK, we're going into the next room, and if any of the littler ones are easily scared, we must warn you that this one is particularly frightening. And Lola started tensing up immediately, and uh, my wife asked the lady what was in the next room, and she said, oh, it's the blink statuettes and uh lola heard her and immediately started crying and wanted to get out of there oh my god <laughs> you know she's 22 oh so it's a bit weird no i'm joking she yeah. she was about three but um uh so we had to we had to leave <laughs> we had to leave didn't so i didn't see that one but my wife described it as a really cool uh very frightening but cool kind of part of the doctor who experience but yeah they were great those uh coming to life statues 
And that's a very recent, relatively recent one. I mean, in the last 10 years, that episode. Another great one, which I found terrifying, was in the first series of the comeback Doctor Who, where they had the uh, the kids with the gas masks that were yeah. welded onto their face. Are you my mummy? Oh, my God. Oh, <laughs> don't do <laughs> Are you my mummy? Oh. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually just, oh, my God, it's so horrible. Really horrible. <sighs> very clever, though. So, oh, God, I won't be able to sleep tonight. Kick over the statue. Which brings us on to the last section, which I always ask all my guests, what is their favourite piece of music to do with public art or statues, and, and what is yours? Well, I I worried about using the title of your actual podcast, but I was familiar with the reference, because I think you and, you and I have talked many times over the years about our love of the Redskins. So, of course, oh. uh, Kick Over the Statues was one of their most exciting numbers from back in the day. Yeah. And it's a, so oh, they're yeah. a great band, and that's just a fantastic song. And, of course, uh, off the brilliant album Neither Washington Nor Moscow. Um, am I right in thinking they only produced one album in their entire career? I think, they did. Yeah. They, they made some recordings towards the second one, but they were, they'd broken up by the end of 1986. Um, they, they lasted... Just under five years. Right. Um, yeah, fronted by an, an enemy writer, weren't they, called Christine? That's right. Um, I, I, I loved him in The Enemy before he was even in the band. And, and I had to look this up because I'd remembered it. But he once said of Bust the Blood Vessel, he looked as if he had been poured into his trousers, but somebody had forgotten to say when. <laughs> He was a bit of a cruel bastard, actually. Him and Seething Wells right. were sort of like partners in crime in the enemy. They, they were a great band. I saw them quite a few times. They were an amazingly exciting live band, you know, like a, a cross between punk and Tamla Motown. Yeah, absolutely. And really compelling. I, do you know what? In doing my bit of research for this to make sure I could uh, talk about them with some authority, I, uh, I discovered a few things that I didn't know before. One was that the um, brass section that I think, you know, they're so well known for being a big part of their sound wasn't initially yeah. part of the band at all. And they only got the brass section in when they uh, were asked to do a peel session. So when they asked to do a peel session, the bass player, uh, Martin Hewis, he was saying, yeah. they, because they were big fans of Weller, well, Weller was doing brass, so they should give it a go. So they got a brass section in for the peel session and they went, no, oh, that sounded pretty good. And that became a staple part of the band from then on. It's a great, I mean, that's a great riff in that song, isn't it? Da, 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 da. Yeah, well, oh, so many of their songs you can't imagine without brass, you know? It's such a big part of their mm. sound. But I also discovered horrifically that Ed Vasey, Tory MP Ed Vasey, claims to be a huge Redskins fan. And he, that's and he said that even back in the day, he... He was very aware that their songs were all very anti-Thatcher and he loved Thatcher. So he was uh, a bit, you know, troubled by the lyrics, but loved the, the music so much that he just sort of let it pass him by. But it's, you know... Oh, my God. He shouldn't be allowed to be a Redskins fan. It's a bit like Cameron with the Smiths, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. It's just not right. It wasn't for you <laughs> to stay away. <laughs> I have to say that I met him, Christine, on several occasions and... A skint video, the double act that I used to be in. Uh, we did a, a benefit for the apartheid movement, not the, so the anti-apartheid. Oh, that's not, important. Not the pro-apartheid. That's an important group. distinction. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was Bomber Harris. Uh, a benefit for Bomber <laughs> Harris. It was. Um, it was on Sunday, the eighth of June in uh, nineteen eighty-six at the Mean Fiddler in Halston. Right. 
and uh, the Redskins were curating, I think is the word they use now, but um, uh, Christine was basically comparing. And this is the bill, right? The skit video, Arnold Brown, Norman Lovett, and Keith Allen in his guise as his act, Reg Arkwright, the Northern Industrial Gay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and uh, it was one of the most bizarre nights I've ever been involved in. First of all, I mean, you'll be familiar with this when people are running benefits. The Redskins said, yeah, what we want to do, uh, you know, we really like all you guys. So what we're going to do is we're going to come on and we're going to do a set first. Uh-oh. <laughs> what? And honestly, we were, we had to plead almost on our knees. Please don't do that. Please do not do that. And eventually they relented. They will not come back to stand-up or anything close to it after they've seen rock and roll, will they? No, especially as they were... Um, OK, they weren't... You know, they never made it um, massively big, but the place was heaving. Yeah. I mean, and it was a rough gig. I mean, it's the only time... I mean, you're familiar with the work of um, Norman Lovitz yeah. and Arnold Brown, both of whom the Redskins apparently were big fans of. It was so bad. The heckling was pretty bad. Yeah. That's the only time I've ever heard Arnold Brown use the C word. Wow. This is a common problem, isn't it? Over my career, if you can call it that, the 27 years that I've been doing stand-up, and I know that's just, you know, I'm just a junior compared to your fucking 48, whatever it is. But um, I am... Um, <laughs> it's actually 30. Right. But, but if, you know, the times I've been asked to do something where there's a, essentially a rock band on, but they, they think it'd be fun to have a comic earlier on in the evening and it's always been disastrous and i've seen it also in a much more sort of high-end way i went to see the the doing like a special christmas gig this was wow. about 20 odd years ago when dusk came out the album dusk and the album oh what an album isn't it brilliant oh. well the album as you know starts yeah. with the sound of sort of an audience laughing and then and then he says have you ever wanted anything so badly uh, so he thought tom johnston he thought Sorry, Matt Johnston. He thought it would be good yep. to have Tommy Cockles. You know, the uh, what's his real name? The act he oh. plays in. So what's his name? Uh, Tommy Cockles. <laughs> Tommy Cockles. So who, who plays Tommy Cockles, Steve? Yeah, I think his name was um, Simon Day. Anyway, he, so he came out. This was Brixton Academy. Absolutely jam-packed. The lights went down. People think they're about to see Matt Johnston. And Tommy Cockles comes out in his blazer and his glasses. Oh, and, and and obviously, it was a terrible idea because he started doing gags and the audience were like, fuck off! And uh, chucking things and, get off, mate, you're <laughs> shit, give us the, the... And, you know, he died in a most horrific way. And after about six minutes, he walked off. The lights went down again and these guys started pushing through the crowd in balaclavas. You'd never do this now. Literally, people were like, who the hell are these? And they put pushing people out of the way, and they jumped on the stage, picked up the instruments, and started playing the first tune. And it was the there, and they'd come from the back of the room. So obviously, Matt Johnson oh had this idea that Tommy Cockles would come on, everyone would be laughing, then they would storm through the crowd and start playing. And of course, it backfired horribly because he died. <laughs> the audience were in a bad mood. <laughs> I mean, you're damn right they couldn't do it today. Imagine if they came through the crowd. Wearing balaclavas, they'd just be shot. Well, it'd be absolutely... <laughs> you wouldn't even get to the stage, Absolutely awful, yeah. But you know, it shows you how much times have changed since then, doesn't it, that that wouldn't have been considered. Yeah, I met him in person as well, Christine, because I was involved in Red Wedge, and I witnessed a um, horrible, horrible argument between him and uh, Paul Weller and Pauline Black from The Select. Oh, really? What were they arguing about? They were arguing about Northern Ireland, funnily enough. 
I, I'm not going to go into the ins and outs of the year, but there was a lot of shouting involved. Wow. And I was, it was me and Brian were just like, we were just thinking, what the fuck are we doing here, actually? Because we couldn't, you know, we, we weren't pop stars. Uh, I, we kept our heads down. <laughs> he's completely disappeared, Christine, hasn't he? No one knows where he is. There's rumours that he's living in Paris as a recluse, as it were, but... Um, I think they made a fair amount of money. I don't know. Apparently, they there are rumours occasionally that they will get back together again. But um, incidentally, by the way, looking at it from the prism of today, uh, their their name is incredibly problematic, isn't it? Well, with regards to sort of American football team yeah. that changed their name and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose yeah, yeah. it is, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that today they would tie themselves in ideological knots um, yeah. and probably change their own name, wouldn't they? Do you know what? The chances of having a successful comeback with a changed name are pretty slim I think <laughs> do you know what I mean it's hard enough as it yeah. is to sell um, tickets but if people don't even know what who you used to be that's that's a that's a tough call three old skinhead geezers play kick over the statues I had to say by the way I always think with kick over the statues it's it's pretty hard to do that have you ever tried to kick a statue it fucking hurts I think once they're down you can hit them with your shoe I think that's that's quite a popular thing to do, isn't it? That's what they did in Iraq, didn't yeah. they, to the statue of Saddam Hussein, which was uh, very brave uh, once the statue was, was down. Take that! You know, mild disapproval. Steve, did you or were you about during the infamous GLC concert where the Redskins were invaded by Nazi skinheads who started beating everyone up? Were you involved in that? Not involved in it, but, you know. I wasn't, actually. I think that Skip Video were doing another gig somewhere else that day. Of course, I heard about it because I knew lots of people that were working on the show. I I would hate to have been at it because, you know, I find that sort of thing absolutely terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We were once trapped in Woolwich Poly. This is a true story, Skip Video, which had huge glass-fronted windows and the National Front came down because they heard that there was a comedy night on full of lefties and they smashed every single window in the building. And I'm talking maybe about 200 glass windows. Wow. And we cowered with, you know, it's like a scene out of The Hobbit where they're in the mines with the dwarves. And we bolted the big door downstairs to get in the venue because the glass front led into the foyer. It was just covered in glass and they were kicking the doors. Eventually... After about half an hour, during which time the skinheads had done, you know, all the damage, the police arrived and they, they ran away. That's probably one of the most terrifying experiences of my life. It was horrible. Do you know, there's a there's a great movie. I think it's called Green Room and it's set in a, an American punk rock club and uh, it's done like a horror movie. And the scenario... I've seen it. You've seen it. So these kind of Nazi skins turn up to beat up the band and the band are basically holed up in the room behind the stage. Uh, it's, it's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, it's it's creepy and really, really, it's quite scary. Yeah, it is. I mean, people forget, don't they, that the atmosphere in the late 70s and early 80s, I mean, Ian Stone's book, To Be Someone, mm. you know, the one about the jam, I think it captures the mood perfectly. I mean, violence was a part of everyday life. It was very violent. Every time I went to a gig in my teenage years, there was violence every time. And now it's almost yeah. unheard of. I mean, I very rarely see violence at a live gig. And it used to yeah. just be a guaranteed thing. I went to see the specials when I was about, I don't know, 12. I don't know how I got in, but that was more common in those days. I had to go with my big sister because my mum wouldn't let me go on my own. <laughs> and uh, it was a, it was at Bracknell Sports Centre. 
And while we were waiting to get in outside Bracknell Sports Centre, sort of all these different factions were turning up. So, you know, mods from Aldershot and skinheads from Guildford and skinheads from Bracknell. Wow. And, and there was horrible violence outside the venue even before the gig started. And then constantly during the gig, the band would stop playing because there were people Zeke hiling them on one side of the room and then people running at each other from the other side of the room. And the band several times jumped off the stage and fought with the audience. And I was very impressed as a 13-year-old that they had the chutzpah to do that. But eventually the police came in the back of the room with, with dogs. It was absolute carnage, but very exciting. Hell. Very exciting. You can't really imagine that happening at a, sort of a One Direction concert or something, like, or Little Mix, can you? <laughs> no, you can't. Where was that gig? Because I went to see the specials at Lewisham Odium uh, many moons ago uh, when Lewisham Odium was still open. So that must have been 80, 79, 80. Yeah, this was about 81, I think. And again, the NF were out in force. But, of course, what was beautiful about that whole two-tone movement was they were they were totally outnumbered. And that was a sweet feeling in a way. There was a, about 50 of them, but there was thousands of us. Yeah, but unfortunately, they were slightly more adept at fighting and violence than most of the uh, rude boys and mods, you know. <laughs> That's very true. I mean, you didn't want to get your stay-pressed shirts uh, ripped did absolutely you? not and you didn't want to engage if you didn't have to the, you know it was a last resort really kind of fighting for people that i knew but if we had to fight our way out of a situation occasionally but didn't go looking for it but these guys had turned up with that aim and uh, they'd actually trained for it and i thought of them as men they looked like big men to me but if i saw them now i'd probably think oh they were just they were just skinny kids but they looked terrifying when you were 13 and they were 17 because that's a huge difference and it's always a, it fascinates me I, I know this might be going off on a tangent but why the association with the shortness of the hair and the violence he didn't really get violent hippies although i have been beaten up by hippies at, at glastonbury once and uh, when i was 11 years old i was beaten up by skinheads they took my um I had a bag because I really liked that bag and they took it. And uh, I'm the only person I think that's been beaten up by hippies and skinheads. Oh, crikey. That was a bad day. Why do you think about the shortness of hair? What is it? Well, I think I guess it's a look that you choose for a certain kind of... It's got a bit of attitude to it, hasn't it? It is sort of antisocial to mm. shave your head. Although, ironically, what, 70% of British men over 45 end up looking like skinheads anyway, don't they? So, you know. I can verify that, yes. It could be something to do with aerodynamics as well. When they headbutt you, they, right. the head goes faster through the air. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, I think that about wraps it up for this week. It's been a very interesting podcast and a very interesting discussion. I would like to thank you very much, Ben, for being my guest. Thank you for having me, Steve. It was great fun. It's been wonderful fun, and please, everyone, tune in next week when we present Kick Over the Statues. Kick over the statues. Kick over the statues. Perhaps you'd like to leave them up as examples to our song. Or put them all on video so we can watch them as they fall. Kick over the statues. Statues, nothing set in stone.